Welcome to the Empower Hair Fitness Podcast. I'm your host, Aoife, and this is episode number 56. And in today's episode, we are talking about the science of behavior change with Dr. Gary Mendoza. And Dr. Mendoza is a leading expert in behavior change in the UK and the owner of Stages of Change, which delivers behavior change workshops online for coaches and personal trainers who want to help their clients with the mindset and psychology behind creating changes that will help them to sustain their weight loss results long term. I think this episode is a really great episode on mindset and for those of you who know me and follow me or are clients of mine, you'll know I'm very big on mindset. A lot of the ideas and strategies we discuss around psychology of change are really integral to my coaching practice with clients and are things that I have used for quite a long time and they're not anything that's majorly new but they might be um, ideas that you've never really put much thought into before. I also know that a lot of you listening are coaches yourselves. A lot of my clients are coaches, um, or even if you're listening from your own point of view as a client or as somebody on their own weight loss or fitness journey, I think understanding the psychology of change and understanding the science of behavior change is really helpful because achieving consistency and adherence is definitely by far the biggest challenge that I see among people trying to lose weight or trying to implement a healthier lifestyle. So these um, psychological considerations and the theory behind long-lasting weight loss nutrition interventions can be really helpful in that regard. So in the episode, we discuss the behavioral traits that determine whether a person will succeed at dieting or not, the stages of change, and how to move a person from not ready to change to actually taking action, and also habits and whether those can actually be changed, and how to move away from perfectionism. I think it'll be a really a fantastic insight into psychology and behavior change for a lot of you and if you enjoy the episode and if you feel like it will resonate with somebody else feel free to send it on to them and share it with the world and if you're enjoying the podcast I would love if you could take a moment to leave a review and rating on Apple iTunes as that helps other people to find the podcast too. So without further ado let me introduce today's guest Dr. Gary Mendoza. Welcome to the podcast Gary. Thanks for inviting me on. Yeah, I'm looking forward to speaking with you today all about um, behavior change and how um, mindset and psychology can influence how people can maintain their results, you know, post-diet. But before we get into that, um, how about you take the listeners on a journey of, you know, your story and who you are and what you do? Okay, fine. Um, Right. Hi, everybody. I'm Dr. Gary Mendoza. Um, I've been a personal trainer for 30 years. I was one of the first PTs in the UK. And I represented UK at the first ever international personal training convention. And then got into nutrition from that because I found I was forever blagging it with my clients in terms of nutrition and kind of reading things in magazines and thinking, oh, that'd be a good idea. I'll tell people that. So I thought maybe I should learn about it properly. So I've got a first class honours degree in nutrition, applied human nutrition. I've worked as a sports nutritionist. Um, I've worked, I've managed city centre gyms, leisure clubs across the UK and worked for one of the biggest training providers in the UK, wrote all their nutrition courses. And they sponsored me to do my PhD. And my PhD is a multidimensional model for the treatment of male obesity. And that's really where I kind of got into the psychology side of kind of weight management, as it 
software and behavior change. So I did that. Um, then I spent two years at Massey University in New Zealand, and I repeated my research there. And we got similar results in terms of weight management, in terms of a kind of 86% success rate or something like that. And the reason we were getting such a high success rate was I was screening people beforehand to make sure they were ready to change. I was using psychometric testing to see should you enter this weight management program or do you kind of need to, for want of a better way, get your head right first. And I'm, I'm firmly of the opinion now that trainers in particular should screen people first to make sure they're ready to change because my perception coming into my PhD was, oh, well, if you take on a personal trainer, you must be ready to change. You wouldn't want to pay all that money if, if you weren't. And what the research highlighted was that's not true. In fact, people will take on the trainer, and I think there's an expectation that the trainer will have all the answers, and that's clearly not the case. And so as time's gone on, I've got, got into behaviour change more and more because, for me, it's kind of the missing piece of the puzzle. It's like you can have all the nutrition knowledge you want and all the bit exercise, activity knowledge and whatever, but if you're not psychologically ready to change, then there's a pretty good chance you won't succeed at what you're trying to do. So getting your head right first is really important. And the other thing that I do within behavior change is motivational interviewing. And that came about through the work I did in New Zealand, because I work with the Maori and South Pacific Islanders and the Manawatu region of uh, North Island decided to adopt my weight management program right across the region. But it, it left us with a bit of a dilemma in that, well, if we, in public health, you can't assess somebody and go, oh, well, you're not psychologically ready to change. You can't enter the program. You have to be able to offer them something. And motivational interviewing was kind of the missing bit of the puzzle, as it were, because that's designed to help you. If you're kind of ambivalent about change, it's designed to move you to a point so that you can find your own reasons for wanting to change. And so that's kind of how I ended up here today, really now, delivering workshops on behaviour change, motivational interviewing and cognitive behavioural therapy. Wow, fantastic. And I do think like that is, you know, really one of the, the missing links when it comes to people succeeding at long-term weight loss maintenance, because like we have, you know, all the knowledge and information. I know a lot of the listeners listen to this podcast will be well aware of, you know, how to diet, how to implement a calorie deficit, what to do when it comes to weight loss. But the thing that people struggle with is maintaining that weight loss and not having to go back into that diet cycle again. And a lot of that comes down to mindset and psychology. Um, so talk us through a little bit around the, the psychometric testing, because that sounds quite interesting. Like how um, do you assess a person's readiness to change? Okay, so psychometric tests are really designed to almost find out what's going on at a subconscious level. And if anyone's ever done a psychometric test, Sometimes the questions just seem really odd and strange. And sometimes it's almost like they repeat the same thing. But in fact, they are specifically designed to do that because it makes you kind of access lower regions of your mind and your brain and that. And so a psychometric test will tease out kind of what's running the show, for want of a better word. And so the tests I used... Um, measured your readiness to change so the stages of change model from Pachatsky and DiClemente so it will tell you where you are on that journey and so that particular model it says that when people are changing you're either going to be in any of a number of stages pre-contemplation being 
not thinking about it at all, not interested. Contemplation, you're kind of thinking about it, maybe going to do it, not quite sure. Preparation, you're moving to a point where you're actually going to do something. And then action, where you are physically going to do something. And then hopefully, as you say, we get to maintenance, but that's normally where it falls down. People kind of get to action and then something happens and they have a relapse and they're back to square one almost. So got a test that will measure where you are on that journey. Can measure self-efficacy. So you can kind of think of that as self-confidence. It's not truly, but it's kind of a similar thing in terms of at a subconscious level, how much do you really believe you can lose weight and keep it off? And a lot of people at a conscious level will go, oh, yeah, I can do that. I'm ready or whatever. But actually, when you measure their self-efficacy, which is kind of their values and beliefs, they're nowhere near where they need to be. So can measure that. And then decisional balance. And decisional, but Janice and Matt and two psychologists, they said that when we make changes, uh, when we're going to make a decision in life, we basically use kind of a spreadsheet approach and we kind of weigh up the pros and cons. And if the pros outweigh the cons, we do it. If the pros and cons are about the same, you would classify that as ambivalence. So kind of sitting on the fence, not sure which way to go. And if the cons outweigh the pros, you're never going to do it. <coughs> so you can measure where somebody is on that. So using all those, in my research, in the, in the pilot study, I got 200 trainers across the UK to get their clients to take these tests. And then I looked at the data. And then what I did was I followed them up 12 weeks later. I didn't go back to the trainers. I went back to the clients. And what I found was I could look at the data and I could predict which clients would lose weight and which ones would drop out of the program and not have any success just from the data. And so what we did in the next phase of the study was I said to trainers, right, you can only take clients on if they meet this criteria. And when they did that, that's when we got the 86% success rate. So it's like you can tell from the data when somebody's really ready to change. And then what about those clients that are not ready to change? What um, were there strategies and that you used to, to move them forward or... What approach would you take with those clients? Well, that's where motivational interviewing came in, because when the Manamatu region said we want to adopt, adopt this system, they basically said to me, what on earth do we do with the clients that we think aren't ready? How do we help them? And I kind of trawled around the literature and came across motivational interviewing, and that is specifically designed to take people that are ambivalent, so their pros and cons are about the same for wanting to lose weight, and it helps them move to a point they kind of helps them discover their own reasons why they should maybe change and make changes and so it's really specifically designed to do that and I was fortunate that when I decided to learn motivational interviewing I was trained by Stephen Rolnick and Bill Miller the two guys who actually came up with it decades ago. Oh wow it sounds really powerful because obviously getting somebody from the point where they are ambivalent about change to actually being and um, more intrinsically motivated and self-motivated to do it is the key, really, because that's what I've noticed anyway, you know, with clients myself, that the clients that have that stronger internal motiv motivation to actually make changes and um, follow a program and, you know, create results for themselves, they're the clients that, that really get the most out of working with a coach. Um, whereas 
people who are that little bit and more, you know, I guess, guarded about whether they want to do it or not and unsure, um, they're the clients that struggle. So what is it um, that you actually, you know, tease out of people when you do that motivational interviewing? It's really because people, you, know, you kind of read, oh, motivated. it's something you do to a client or something, some magic kind of thing, I don't <laughs> know. But actually, it's just a conversation style. But it's a conversation style that's very much client-centered and it's got purpose and direction. So it's a bit like having a cozy chat. It's just that you as the coach know why you're having that chat and you're kind of steering it where you want to go. And when I teach, especially when I teach trainers, motivational interviewing, it's quite interesting because it's a whole new way of communicating. And so you've talked and conversed as we are now like this for 20, 30, 40 years, depending on how old you are. And suddenly I'm saying, you need to do this differently. And it's a real challenge because it's like, I've always talked this way. It's like, no, you have to get it. Because you have to, with motivation interviewing, you have to really hone your listening skills. You definitely have to become a better listener. You have to kind of accept that you most probably don't have all the answers because the clients need to discover their own answers. It's no good me sitting here with all my own values and beliefs going, well, you should lose weight because it's for your health and your heart and whatever, because that might not be their values. So they need to find their own kind of values and beliefs as to why they might want to make a change. So active listening is really important. The other thing that's majorly important is understanding the way that people will make changes. So we've got this thing as experts in the field, anyone's got this. It's called your writing reflex. And so when somebody says something like, I don't know, for the sake of argument, oh, I think the keto diet's really the best way to lose weight. If I allowed my writing reflex to kick in, I go, no, no, you don't want to be doing keto because it does this in metabolism and this does this and that does that. That's my writing reflex. It's me just want to download information on you in terms of, no, you've got it wrong. This is what you should do. So you really have to temper that. And that's really difficult for trainers sometimes because you're desperate to give information. But the way you give information in motivational interviewing is really important. There's a specific way you should deliver it so as a, a client is more likely to take that information on board. So it's kind of a whole new way of dealing with clients, really. Wow. Yeah, fantastic. Okay. Um, so there was another thing that you mentioned there, um, and that was the the stages of change. And I know you kind of touched on what they were, but could you tell us a little bit more about what each of those stages are, just so people can understand where they might be at? Sure. So stages of change model, if you really want to kind of look into the detail of it, it's Prochatska and DiClemente. So you can kind of Google that. You'll get loads of articles or whatever. But basically they proposed, and it was first designed for um, smoking cessation, and then it's been used in other addictive behaviors and more late more lately in the last decade or so anyway more so in weight management and exercise behavior and they propose that when people are making a change they go through these different stages and so pre-contemplation that means you're really not thinking about it you're not interested so if any of you know smokers and somebody that smokes if you would say to them oh you should stop smoking they're just not interested. No, I don't want to. I enjoy it. That's it. So they're in pre-contemplation. They're not even considering making any type of change. Could be the same with somebody that's overweight or obese. You know, you say to them, oh, you really need to lose weight for your health or whatever. And they're like, 
no, I'm quite happy as I am. So when you get these uh, weight acceptance groups or whatever, I often think they're in pre-contemplation. They just don't want to think about it. And that's fair enough. That's their choice. Something happens in your life now. Could be, I don't know, get an invite to a party or you've got a holiday coming up or whatever. And you think you start to think, oh, I really should lose a bit of weight. I'll be better for it. You're in contemplation now. You're starting to weigh up the pros and cons. You haven't quite decided to do it, but you're certainly kind of having that conversation in your head. And so that's the ambivalent client. They've, they can see, if I was to say to them, what are the advantages of losing weight for you? They'd be able to list them. But if I was to say to them, what are the disadvantages? Their list would most probably be the same length. So they're very much on the fence. We then move into a shorter stage, which they added at a later date called preparation. And normally this is kind of six to 12 weeks long. And when you move into preparation, you are now starting to think about how you might go about it or whatever. And it doesn't take too much to shift you one way or the other. You might hear the right piece of information. You might meet somebody. And that will be enough to kind of push you, if you like, into action. Equally, you might see a piece of information or whatever, and it will push you back the other way. So it's still not 100% that you will do something about it. Ultimately, you move into action. And so this is where you're taking steps. You've maybe signed up with the trainer or you join the gym or you start whatever diet is you fancy. And that stage, um, the only problem I have, ever have with the stage of change model is they kind of put lengths of time on it. And I think we're all different. So they say the action stages can be up to six months. For me, I think it could be shorter. It could be longer. I think it will very much depend on the individual. But anyway, you move through action, you maybe get the results you want, you lose the weight, you get that bit fitter. And then ultimately, hopefully, you move into maintenance. The key thing about the stages of change model is, though, you have to accept that at any point in that, it's not a one-way street. It's not like you come in at the top, work your way through, and you will ultimately get to maintenance. You can relapse at any time. So it doesn't matter which stage of change you're in, you can relapse. And the thing is, you don't always relapse right back to pre-contemplation. You maybe could just relapse back to preparation again. And so this is what we see with yo-yo dieters. And anybody that's tried two, three, four diets, if you think about how you thought about starting the diet and then what you did when you were doing the diet and how you lost the weight and then something happened and you stopped doing it and you put the weight back on, you can normally kind of tease out what happened in terms of, oh, I was in contemplation, then I moved to action, and then I had a bad day at the office and I wrecked the diet, and so I went all the way back to pre-contemplation and don't want to do it anymore. And so you can actually yo-yo diet is a good example of, of the stages of change kind of working in some respects. Wow, yeah, that's really, um, really interesting and definitely would help people to understand like where they're at if they're, you know, on that path of considering, you know, making some changes. Um, so we've looked at like the stages of change where people might be at and they're thinking about, you know, maybe starting a diet, losing weight. Uh, we've looked at, you know, how people are motivated and motivational interviewing and um, getting to the, the root of their motivation, I guess, because that's going to be really, really important in order for people yeah. to actually stick with what they're doing. And I think that's super important for a coach to, to understand because like there's only so much you can do as a coach when you give you know your client the tools, the program, they can have the best program in the world, but if they're not ready to, to make that change and make some sacrifices and have that 
um, internal motivation actually pushing them to do it, then mm-hmm. it's very difficult for them to stick to a program. Um, and I guess the next thing I wanted to maybe chat with you about was that maintenance phase and why it is that a lot of people struggle when they get to that point and tend to relapse. I think the main reason from my perspective is whatever you've done to get to that point, and it's something I often say to, because I work with a number of one-to-one clients and I'll say to them, I said, any changes you're going to make, I don't want you to think of these as a six-week change, a 12-week change. It's one of the problems I really have with transformation programs and that, because we shouldn't be doing that as coaches. We should be looking at lifestyle changes. And so I always say to clients, that if you're going to make a change, you have to view it as something you're going to do for the rest of your life, not, oh, I'll do it for the next six weeks or the next 12 weeks or whatever I said, because if it's not a lifestyle change, all that will happen is we'll get to the end of the program, you'll get the results you want, and then you'll think, oh, well, I'm fixed now, and go back to doing what you were doing before. And and my favourite kind of saying with them is, look, it's your lifestyle that got you fat, and only changing your lifestyle is going to get you thin again. So you kind of have to buy into this idea that if you're going to make a change, make sure it's one you can stick with. And so the way I, I never – I've I've been a nutritionist – nearly 30 years now, about 25 years, I've never written a diet program ever. I've never written, apart from when I've worked with elite athletes for very specific things. But in terms of general public, general clients, never done it. I don't believe in them because, yeah, you'll follow them for six weeks, eight weeks, 12 weeks, but then you'll just slowly, you'll go back to doing what you're doing. So the way I like to work is make small changes and see if they work. Give it two, three, four weeks. If you, if their client comes back to me in two, three weeks' time and goes, I did that and that, and I don't really know if I'm doing that, that says to me, good chance you'll carry on doing it. If they come back to me in two or three weeks' time and go, I tried that, but then I had a really bad day at the office or the kids played up or the car didn't start, and so I did this and this, that tells me that change is never going to happen. Because if you can't do it while you're working with me, you're definitely not going to do it once we've kind of got to a point where you're kind of happy with where you're at. So you need to find things that work for your lifestyle. And I think having realistic expectations about what can be achieved as well. I think sometimes people like to think, you know, they come to you, they're 30, 40 years old, and they go, oh, well, I'd really like to be this weight. (coughs) And you say to them, why that weight? Oh, well, that was the way I was when I was 18, 19, 20. It's like, I'm not sure how realistic that is. It's like if you can give them a real realistic view, it's like, well, let's just say you lost, I don't know, for the sake of argument, five kilograms. In terms of the health benefits of losing five kilograms, that's massive. So you should see that as a success. And so set yourself some kind of really realistic goals that you think you can maybe stick with because that long-term for your health is going to be far better. Mm-hmm. But having realistic small changes that have got health benefits for me is is far better yeah absolutely and I think that's a really timely one as well because we're coming into Christmas and um, New Year's coming up and um, a lot of people will be 
thinking about after Christmas and setting New Year's resolutions and um, the sort of goals they want to set for 2022. And I think that's where a lot of people do tend to go wrong because they set these massive unachievable goals instead of looking at, you know, maybe some more short term goals that'll be easier for them to actually follow through with and achieve some success and feel like they're actually making progress. Um, and I know like that's something that I think fi- works really well with clients as well, instead of looking at like a massive goal, breaking it down into smaller chunks. I'm a big fan of goal setting. If you look at um, cognitive behavioral therapy, goal setting is used in a lot of different types of therapy under the umbrella name of cognitive behavioral therapy. When I first learned CBT, I thought it was just one type of therapy. It turns out CBT is just an umbrella term for a whole load of different ways of approaching behavior change and goal setting used in a number of those different kind of therapies. So I'm a big believer in have a long term goal by all means, might be a year down the line, but also have a medium term goal that might be six months and then a short term goal, which could be just a month. And then every week, set yourself little targets. So the long-term, if give you an analogy, the long-term goal would be, I want to be able to climb onto the roof of my house. And so, oh, God, how am I going to do that? Now, if you just leave it as that, climbing onto the roof of a two-story house, because I know you have a lot of bungalows in Australia, <laughs> but in the UK, we have a lot of two-story houses. So climbing onto the roof of a two-story house, that's difficult. So what I need to do is I need to make sure I've got a ladder and that's good. And now I can have a ladder that's got really widely spaced runs, but that's going to be difficult to climb. But that's my medium term goals going in there. My short term goals, my little weekly targets, they're the little rungs in the ladder. And so as I achieve each of those, then it makes climbing that ladder and getting onto the roof really easy. And so Set yourself a weekly target, and it can be something really simple as, I don't know, for instance, I'm going to try and eat breakfast four times this week or whatever it might be. And I think the other thing to you need to talk to people about goal setting is, and, I, and, it's, and it's equally true of the stages of change model, actually. You'll often hear people say, oh, I don't really like goal setting because when I don't achieve my goals, it, I, it kind of gets me down or whatever. I said, it's because you're looking at your goals the wrong way. I said, what you need to think of it, you need to think of them as lessons. So learn from them. In CBT, something that you do quite regularly with clients when they're trying to kind of get their head straight or whatever, whether it be around depression or whatever, you'll do experiments with them. And so I I tell my clients to treat each of these weekly goals as an experiment. And so if we stick with the breakfast analogy, My hypothesis would be, so the hypothesis is what you think might happen. And so my hypothesis would be, if I eat breakfast four times this week, I'll have more energy during the day. Okay, so now I need to set up an experiment to test that hypothesis. The experiment will be, I'm going to eat breakfast on four occasions. I'm going to have a bit of toast and some cereal, whatever it might be. Great. Okay, how do I measure that? I'm going to look at my energy levels through the day and see if there's any difference. And now I just run the experiment. Following week, I look back and I go, yeah, I did have more energy. Oh, my hypothesis is proven then. So we move on to the next experiment. Equally, I maybe didn't manage to eat breakfast. And so I think, oh, well, that experiment didn't work. What can I do to improve it to make sure it works next time? And we just treat it like that. We don't look at it as success or failure. It's just 
If it works, great. If it doesn't, don't worry. We'll learn from it. And so rather than look at it as failure, look at it as feedback. And I always say to people, when you don't achieve that short-term goal, don't beat yourself up. I said, but what you need to do is sit down, just spend five minutes thinking, okay, I didn't achieve that. Why is that? What could I do better next time that would maybe help me achieve that? And I said, as long as you can do that, as long as you can learn one thing from it, that has actually been a really valuable lesson. Because the way we learn in like when we're kids, when you learn to ride a bike, you don't just jump on a bike and ride it first time. You normally have stabilizers or your parents running along behind you holding the saddle or whatever. And you most probably fall off five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten times. But each time you fall off, you you learn a bit, you get a little bit better at doing it. And goals should be the same type of thing. It's like do them. If they work, great, that's a bonus. But if they don't, learn from it. And that is also a bonus because now you can take that lesson forward and just move on with it. Yeah, and I think that's actually um, really relevant as well to like just day to day, like if people are, you know, I think in the context of maybe somebody that's struggling with adherence to a diet, for example, and they have days where, you know, they're not so good and they fall off the wagon. And a lot of people then, you know, will see that as just a sign to throw in the towel and just like, you know, eat all the food and just say, fuck it. Um, Whereas like I always say to my clients, you know, if something, if you have like a meal that doesn't go to plan, you end up like, you know, overeating that day or whatever, you know, just look at it as a lesson, like look at like, what can I learn from that situation? What can I do better next time? Because slip ups like that are always going to happen. Life will happen. We've just got to learn from those things and be able to handle it better next time and then just move on because there's no point in beating yourself up over it or just completely throwing in the towel just because one little speed bump has come up along the way. It's actually got a term. It's called the two psychologists in from Southern Cal University have have researched this and it's called the what the hell effect. And so, Mm -hmm. like you say, you have the bad diet and you think, oh, that's it. I've screwed that up. I might as well finish the pizza and have a glass or a bottle of wine or whatever. And then you do that and you feel guilty about that. So then you think, oh, what the hell? I might as well have some chocolate as well. And then the next day comes around and you're still kind of in that mindset. And it's like, oh, screw it. I'll leave the diet this week. I'll start again on Monday. And then before you know it, you're back into those habits. Monday never comes and you're right off the wagon. And so, as I said, they call it the what the hell effect. And they say it's because people, firstly, you catastrophize the situation. And that comes from cognitive behavioral therapy. It's like looking at the situation unrealistically. And as you rightly say, is that rather than see it as a complete and utter disaster, just see it as, well, life happens and we all have a relapse. And that. and so the best way, and they found the best way to deal with the what the hell effect is don't beat yourself up about it and don't feel guilty. Feeling guilty and feeling bad about it makes it worse. Whereas if you can view it as, oh, it's a bit of a slip up, but I'll learn from it and we'll crack on again tomorrow, then it's managed and you will move on. So Mm -hmm. it really depends how you treat the slip up as to whether you're now going to move forward and stay with the program or you end up dropping out of the program. And the key thing as a trainer is tell your clients beforehand that this will happen. Because when they first sign up with you, they will be super confident that, oh, yeah, you're the trainer for me and you're going to get the results for me and I've read your reviews and your testimonials. And so they're always super confident and again it's a recognized thing it's called bar underestimation 
we und- when we kind of get excited about doing something, we underestimate how difficult it might be. And so in that point in time, we're like super confident. And I always say to trainers, I said, this is the time to talk about relapse. And you, so you tell the client, and of course they're going to go, no, it won't happen this time. I'm going to be fine. And I'm like, no, it will happen. Trust me. And when it does happen, this is a way to manage it. Because now when it does happen, weeks, months down the line, when you talk to that client again, if you haven't talked to them about relapse before and you start going, oh, don't worry, you can just treat it as a little bit of a failure and we'll move on, it sounds disingenuous. It sounds like, oh, she's just trying to keep me in the program. Whereas if you've had this discussion right at the start, now when it happens, you can just go, remember we talked about this when we first got together? And they kind of go, oh, yeah, I did actually. And so now they're liable to manage it better. So always talk about it early with clients, not when it actually happens. Yeah, I think that's so important to anticipate that there are going to be speed bumps along the way and there are going to be slip ups and things like that. And just having some tools in place to manage that and understanding that it happens to everyone. And that's just part of life. And so I think that's quite important. And another thing I wanted to ask you about was, you know, with who really struggle with, I guess, sticking with a diet and adhering to a diet and we touched a little bit on this earlier on with the the yo-yo dieting any research that you've done into this area and how you know people can overcome that well the first thing is i hate the word diet and one of the things that came out of my research especially if you've got male clients men view the word diet very negatively so do not talk to men about diet programs because for men and, and it may be the same for females, I don't know, but my research is obviously with males. But certainly men view the word diet as being hungry, having to restrict things, not allowed certain foods. It's got lots of negative connotations. Mm-hmm. Wow, interesting. Actually, yeah, you'd expect it to be, you know, both male, <coughs> male and female having negative connotations. With no, the no. Diet. And this is something that came out of my research was men and women think very differently in terms of, how they manage weight management and everything. They definitely come at it different perspectives. Another one of my, while we're sticking with language, another one of my favorites is, and it came out of it was the word exercise. A lot of trainers will talk about exercise with clients, but what they don't realize is exercise comes with a whole load of baggage in terms of, I'm going to be hot and sweaty. I have to do it for an hour. It's going to be uncomfortable ever. Now I can have a client and I'll say to them, right, I need you to exercise three to five times a week. And that client will go, oh, I'm not sure if I can fit that in. I'm really busy with it because I work with a number of CEOs of companies. And so it'll be like, oh, yeah, but I have a lot of meetings and I don't know if I can make it or whatever. I can say to that same client, I need you to get active three to five times a week. And they'll go, oh, yeah, I can do that. And you're just like, that is the same thing, but it's just that word. So language is really important in terms of how you approach it. So as I say, the word diet, it's been hijacked by the weight management. Look at look up the word diet. We're all on a diet because it's what mm-hmm. you eat. Exactly. Diet is actually just defined as the, been, your way of eating. <laughs> we, yeah. That word has been hijacked by the weight management industry. And now everybody <laughs> thinks it's all some special plan or something. So if you are going to change your lifestyle, find things that you can stick with. You may not end up with the perfect plate model diet with the right amount of veg and fruit and everything else but if you just make some changes that improve it that's a step forward and see it as a real win 
Because when you get these little wins, they build up. And so find some things that work for you and just stick with them for four, five, six weeks and now make a couple of other changes. And if they're easy and you, you think, yeah, I can do that, well, then stick with them, keep doing it. But if they don't work, don't worry, just find something else. It's a case of going at chipping away at it, really, rather because what happens generally with diet plans is you start the diet and you make all these changes. It's like you have to change food you're keeping in the cupboard because you suddenly have to have all your salads and God knows what else, depending on what the diet is. And you have to kind of get rid of what you would call your favorite food. So you're not allowed any chocolate, Coke, crisps, whatever it is. You're not allowed them in the house. And so suddenly your brain's thinking about them all the time anyway. So it's kind of a self-defeating exercise. So it's better to just find little changes. I don't like people labeling food good and bad. Because that has an effect on your brain. Yeah. You've got this thing in, in your brain called the reticular activating system. And it's kind of like an importance list, for want of a better word. And so if I say to somebody, Oh, that's bad for you, you shouldn't have that. They the only way they can process that is by getting a mental image of it. So it, try this exercise now. If anybody listening now, what I want you to do is don't think about chocolate. Whatever you do now, don't think about chocolate. And I guarantee now that now I've said that to you, all of you have now got a pretty good image of chocolate and you maybe even can feel what it will taste like and it might even make you think, oh, actually, I could do with a bit of chocolate. So it's had the reverse effect to what I was trying to achieve because all it's done is it's brought it into my attention and now wherever I go today, I'm going to see chocolate. So labelling things good and bad and saying you can't have them it kind of has the reverse effect. You you don't want to beat yourself up over anything. I don't think you should exclude any foods from a diet. It's just how often you're going to have those foods and what is your long-term goal. Mm-hmm. Exactly, yeah. I'm a big advocate of that as well. Like I think when it comes to like creating a lifestyle change and you know trying to change your body composition or lose weight, like you need to find an approach that you will be able to continue with long-term because that is what's going to result in you maintaining that weight loss. If you take a drastic approach, that means that you can only do it for, you know, six weeks, eight weeks, you're going to revert back to your old lifestyle after that. And your old lifestyle was what caused you to gain weight. So we want to make gradual changes that are sustainable long-term because, At the end of the day, I think what most people need to remember is when they embark on a diet, if they want to be successful at that long-term weight loss maintenance, they need to make changes to their current lifestyle and they need to be able to continue those changes long-term into the future in order to actually stay where they get to. And so I think that's a big point. Well, I think two, two really important points that you mentioned there. The first one's body composition. I hate this thing about over you're not overweight no one's overweight you might be over fat but you're not overweight so we need to change the terminology because when people say oh i want to lose weight i would say to no you don't what you do you want to lose fat exactly so we should talk about being over fat because if you're going to if you're going to change your body fat your body composition that's going to take a while you can only maybe reduce that by a pound two pound if you're really lucky depends on how obese you are but a pound to two pound a week is pretty much the maximum and if you're seeing anything more than that if you're using scales as your measure then 
trust me, you're not losing fat. You're either losing water or you're losing muscle, lean tissue, which is about the last thing you want to lose. You want to keep that because mm-hmm. that kind of helps you on this journey. So I, th- I do think we need to bin the scales for starters. And, yeah, and I, I, was, I, I preferred like using clothes. I always say to people, how did you know you put weight on? And nine times out of 10, it'll be, oh, well, I tried this dress on or I tried these trousers on and they were a bit tight or whatever. It's like, okay, so that was the indicator to you. Your clothes didn't fit. Why is it you now jump on the scales then? I said, that's the equivalent of hearing a noise in your engine in the car and then looking in the boot to see what the problem is. I said, you've got the problems there, but you look somewhere else for the resolution. I said, so stick with the clothes. And if in six weeks, eight weeks, 10 weeks down the line, those clothes are fitting a bit better, you're on the right track. So, yeah, I, I, because weight loss, it's not linear. I think people want to see a pound, two pound coming off every week, and it doesn't work like that. It's very much an up and down. And but as long as the trend is generally downwards, you've got it. Now, for that trend to be generally downwards, you're talking about weeks and months. And I think this is the other problem. People think, oh, short-term fix, 12-week program. And I think it's an important question to ask yourself is, how long did it take you to put this excess weight on? And they most probably go, oh, when I was in my 20s, I was this weight. And then at 25, I was this. And at 30, I was that. And at 35, I said, so we're talking decades to put this on. And they go, well, yeah, yeah, it's been slow. It's like I said, well, to be realistic, you've got to accept that it's most probably the same journey back then. So we need to start looking at a number of years. So let's just do it slow and steady, but at least it will stay off then. Yeah. Because these quick jumps are like, they're not sustainable. Exactly. And so many people end up worse off by doing that. You know, they'll go on like, um, you know, a six or eight week challenge and do something drastic to lose weight, but then regain all that weight and more at the end of it. And then they're in a worse position and having to lose more weight after that. Um, So I absolutely think, yeah, long term looking at like making sustainable changes and, you know, losing the weight at the right rate per week. Um, And as you said yourself, not just focusing on scale weight, because I think that's somewhere that a lot of women go wrong as well. They want to get back to a weight that they were at when they were in their teens or early 20s um, when it's, you know, they're in their 30s and they've maybe had kids in the meantime and body composition has completely changed. And also, if you've been training for a few years and you've been lifting weights, you're probably going to have built some muscle as well. So when you lose weight this time around, you're likely going to look better at a different weight than you were when you were in your teens or early 20s. So I think that's a really big point. People often, especially female clients, say, oh, I need to lose a stone. And I'm like, mm, don't know if I can do that. I can get even to a dress size, two size smaller. Is that any good to you? And they're like, oh, my God, yeah. And it's actually, that's what they meant all along. Because sometimes you can, I've had, certainly when I did my undergrad research, I looked at what was the best exercise for fat reduction. Was it cardiovascular or was it weight training? More, I mean, as it turns out, weight training was actually far more effective because I think you build lean tissue, and so that kind of helps with, with the whole process. But the point I was coming to was the weight loss across both groups, cardiovascular group and the, the weight training group, was pretty much similar. Over a six-week program, it was about three to four kilograms. 
But when we looked at body composition, what we found was the weight training group, they had reduced their body fat and their waist measurement had reduced by one, two, three, four centimeters, quite a broad range. So their overall body shape had changed. So although there wasn't a massive change in scale weight, in terms of body composition and how they looked, they just looked so much better. So just relying on weight is not a very good indicator, actually. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. That's why I always say to clients, like, we want to look at, like, you know, how your clothes fit, how you're feeling, like, um, you know, your measurements, like, there are so many other indicators of progress, just even like your energy levels and things like that, you know, there are so many other things we can look at as great indicators of progress, rather than just relying on scale weight. And I think the problem, like you mentioned before about scale weight is, it's always going to go up and down as well. And I think, that's something that causes a lot of people to like fall off the wagon, I guess, of whatever program they're on, because at some point this, the weight is going to just jump up one day at random. And a lot of people then um, think that means they failed and they've gained weight and it's not working and it's time to give up. When if you're actually looking at a few other measures of progress along with maybe the scale weight and looking more at averages on weight as well and weight trends um, coming downwards over time, um, that helps you to get more perspective of where you're going and how it's working. Yeah, I mean, and it's kind of, it's back to psychology. It's like, how are you thinking about your progress? And if you're relying on weight as your measure, it's it's going to trip you up at some point, as you rightly say, because weight will fluctuate all the time. And I think it is so important that we focus on health outcomes and, as you say, better energy. So when I work with CEOs of companies, although they'll often say to me, oh, it's about, oh, I want to lose weight or whatever, I'll say to them, Okay, we could, that might happen as we go along. But I said the other benefits will be you'll be more alert, you'll be more effective in the boardroom, you'll have better energy levels. How does that sound to you? Now, for them, that's a big deal because that's kind of that's what their driver is. It's about money and performance at work and whatever. So talking about those type of metrics as opposed to weight is sometimes more useful because they can see the value of those. Mm-hmm. So we kind of concentrate on those quite a bit more as well. Yeah. And I think everyone has, you know, different values. And I think that's, it's important to be able to relate those to, to their journey and to why they're doing this as well, because that helps them to be more, um, I guess, more invested and more successful in the process. Well, intrinsic motivation has, as it kind of almost, you've got a hint there in the title, it has to come from within. And so that's going to be based on your own values. It's going to be based on your knowledge. So part of your role as a trainer should be educating your clients as opposed to just do this because it works. I always say, give people a rationale, explain to them why it would work, give them the science behind it or whatever. So education is really important because what you're doing is you're building that client's capability. And if you build their capability to do something, again, that drives intrinsic motivation. So they start to find their own reasons for wanting to do it as opposed to you saying, oh, you should do this because it's really good for you and, and it'd be better for your health or whatever. That's extrinsic motivation. And it's actually not very powerful. It's, it, it, it does work for some people, but it's most probably not a long-term thing. It's a very short-term thing. And so helping your clients build their own intrinsic motivation should be part of your role because ultimately, and I know some trainers kind of have heart failure when I say this to them, but I say, ultimately, your goal in life is to get rid of your client. And they're like, what do you mean? I said, well, there has to come a point where if you've educated them and they've got fitter and they understand their diet, they don't really need you anymore. 
Yeah, 100%. And that's, that's good. I mean, because they're going to go away and say, what a great trainer she was. If you really need some help, you should go and see her. I said, you see it all the time at elite level sport. Somebody wins an Olympic gold or a number of golds or whatever. And then the following year, they change their coach. And you think, my God, why would you do that? He helped you win gold medals. And the reason is they've outgrown the coach. They've done as much as they can with that. They need to move on. And it's the same with our clients. Our goal should be get them to a point where they really understand what they're doing. They want to do it for themselves. And they're kind of at a point where they're kind of happy in their lives. And if you've done that, you've done a great job as a trainer. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's something I always say to my clients. Like I want to get them to the point where they understand what they're doing themselves, where they're happy with what they've achieved results wise, um, but they feel confident that they can maintain that result long-term themselves. And I think that that should be the end goal for everyone. Yeah. Lifestyle change is, is just that it's kind of, it's, it's you've now got the nutrition education, you've got all the activity exercise education, but most important, psychologically, you're now at the right point where you understand how these things work together and you're able to manage the odd relapse and off day or whatever. You don't start to see it as a catastrophe. So building that psychological robustness is just as important. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for um, coming on to chat today, Gary. I think we've reached the end of our time. Um, is there anything that we haven't covered that you'd like to mention or any last pieces of advice for people listening? I think the only other thing I would think about is, and it kind of bugs me a bit, is habits. When people go on about changing habits, you can't change a habit. A habit is designed, it's a shortcut. It allows you to do things easily. We do loads of things in life habitually. Like if you, if I was to say to everybody now, go and sign your signature on a piece of paper, you wouldn't think about it. You'd get a bit of paper, get a pen, bang, bang, bang. A lot's had to happen for that, to, you know, in terms of moving your arm and grabbing the pen and what have you. So changing habits is, is a silly thing. To, what you can do is you can rewrite, you can write new habits. So understanding why you do something is really important. So if you are in, in the habit of, I don't know, you come in after work, you're really tired, and you say, oh, I'm just going to sit down in front of the television. That's a habit because we, the trigger is you're coming in from work at a certain time. The action is watch the television, and the reward is, oh, I feel relaxed or whatever. If you understand how a habit works and it's always that trigger, action, reward, you can now rewrite that. So you you know that the trigger is getting in from work, being tired. Can't really change that. That will always happen. The next bit can be changed, though. You can decide what action will I do in place of this? And it could be just I'll go for a quick walk around the block, even if it's just 10 minutes to kind of energize myself a bit. That's now a new action. How might you reward that? Or well, now you can reward yourself by, I don't know, listening to the radio, listening to your favorite piece of music or whatever. So you can't change a habit but you can rewrite a habit. So learn what your habits are that are not giving you the results you want and then start to reprogram those habits so as they give you the results you do want. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's um, something that um, that book, Atomic Habits, covers quite well. Um, oh, yeah, that's a great yeah. book. Yeah. yeah, so he talks a lot about like habit stacking and different ways that we can, you know, um, just change the habits i guess that aren't serving us and maybe try adding something else onto it or stacking it to something else um like you said there yourself yeah awesome well um, 
Thanks for that, Gary. Um, before you go, do you want to let the listeners know um, where they can find out a bit more about yourself and your uh, workshops? Certainly. Uh, right, okay, so my website is uh, www.stagesofchange.co.uk. Uh, you can find me on Instagram, Dr. Gary Mendoza, and on Twitter, Dr. Gary Mend, M-E-N-D, just without the O-Z then on the end. So, yep, social media or my website, whichever. And if you've got questions, DM me or whatever grabs you. Perfect. I'll pop the links in the show notes as well for everyone. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed that episode and took a lot away from it. I think it can be really, really helpful to understand that, you know, you can have all the nutrition tools in the world, have all the knowledge around diets, you know, understand what to do when it comes to training. But if your mindset isn't in the right place and you're not ready for change, then that's going to be a massive, massive stumbling block. And it's something that I notice so frequently with clients. And it's why I spend so much time over the years, you know, really working on understanding mindset and psychology, because as a coach, I think that can be a gap that we really can help people with in order for them to be able to create changes and create habits that are going to last and are going to be a lifestyle for them to be able to manage and maintain that lifestyle change forevermore so they actually don't have to go back and diet again in the future if this resonates with you and if you feel like you need help with this sort of thing when it comes to your training and nutrition by all means reach out about one-on-one coaching you can find out a bit more about my coaching services by visiting my website which is www.empowerher.fitness i'll pop the link in the show notes below you can also look me up on instagram which is at actively and as i said before if this episode resonated with you and if you enjoyed it please share it with a friend a co-worker a family member a gym buddy or anyone else who's interested in improving their life and body or you can even take a screenshot and share it to instagram by tagging me at actively ifa and tagging the podcast at empowerher.fitness and finally if you loved this episode the best thing you can do is leave a five-star review and rating on apple itunes as that really helps to get the podcast out there among more people and allows me to get a sense of what you're enjoying when it comes to the episodes Thanks so much, and I will speak to you guys in the next episode. Thanks.